this chapter one, the very first chapter of uh, the Bible. Let me read it to you. The words should come up on the screen behind me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the uh, vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly across the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. And said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening. And there was morning. The fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, 
so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Let's pray for a moment, shall we? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for that, um, that, that, that magnificent piece of prose, for the way that it covers all the heavens and the earth. And we sense, Lord, that it says very important things. And we pray that you will help us, at least in part, to unpick and to understand what you would teach us about what it means to live in your world, to belong to you. Bless us as we seek to understand, we pray. Help us by your Spirit and change us by your Spirit that we would know you more, love you, and serve you with all our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, his novel, Saturday, Ian McEwan, tells the story of uh, one day in the life of a uh, successful neurosurgeon, Henry Perrone. Perrone has been reading Charles Darwin's 19th century book, The Origin of Species, which of course describes the evolution of life according to simple processes of natural selection. And at the end of the book, Ian McEwan quotes uh, Darwin's ending of his book, as his character Perone reflects. There is a grandeur, wrote Darwin, in this view of life, with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. But actually, McEwan's book is 
not about the grandeur of the world created simply by survival of the fittest. McEwan's book is about its futile, meaningless brutality. I don't want to give too many spoilers away for um, uh, the book, but uh, the neurosurgeon Perone has a day in which his world is almost ruined by a thug named Baxter. But Baxter, at a key point in the story, is transfixed when Perone's daughter recites Matthew Arnold's mournful poem, Dover Beach. Dover Beach was a poem published in 1867, just a few years after the origin of the species. And it did not celebrate what Darwin had discovered. It mourned the Victorian world's gradual loss of Christian faith. It pictured Christianity as once have been, as uh, Matthew Arnold describes it, like a high tide, like the high tide at Dover Beach. But then Arnold writes, Now I only hear its long, melancholy, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Now, Ian McEwan's not a Christian. Anything but. But the book that he wrote invites us to mourn our culture's loss of Christian faith. In McEwan's story, the mindless thug, just driven by his own impulses and his own anger, Baxter, is for a moment horrified by that meaninglessness that is exposed by the poem and deeply attracted to the possibility of faith. It's only for a moment. The whole book pauses on that moment and then the brutality comes back in and the day ends as brutally and meaningless as it ever was. But McEwen has made his point. Our, our culture has substantially lost any sense of real faith. And many, many thinkers who reflect on that, mourn it deeply, like Matthew Arnold. And it seems like Ian McEwan. What we're going to do over the next few weeks, in fact, is to reflect in just that way but to try to set out how actually the, the biblical story, in fact, particularly the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 to 3, how those chapters lay a foundation of infinite grandeur, of extraordinary satisfaction, 
of wonderful fruitfulness, of great joy and contentment. And we're going to take weeks uh, over it, so we can only just make a, uh, make a start this week as we uh, look at Genesis chapter 1 at the beginning of the year. Genesis chapter 1 is a rich, poetic, evocative narrative of creation. I hope you, uh, uh, you saw some of that as we read it. In some ways, it covers the, the same ground as Darwin's Origins of Species. It asks deep questions. How did we get here? Why, what has gone wrong with the world? What is our purpose on the earth? But it leads us in a very, very different direction to Darwin. It gives us, I want to suggest to you, a satisfying answer to the question, where do we come from? It gives us a believable narrative about what has gone wrong with the world. It shows us the glorious purpose of human beings in this world. It shows us why those like Matthew Arnold, who have at least reflected a little on what the Christian Bible teaches us, mourn its loss, even if they can't themselves believe it. The first sentence of the Bible dis establishes, without bothering to argue the case, establishes that there is a God who created everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created it by his word. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. The world was created by a God who speaks. Genesis 1 is is highly stylized piece of literature. It repeats, for instance, certain key phrases and words. And sometimes it repeats them three times. And God blessed, and God blessed, and God blessed. Did you notice uh, that phrase coming up a number of times? It seems probably just to, to reinforce and reiterate the concept, God blessed his world, creatures human beings the uh, the seventh day sometimes though there is something more symbolic about it there are several phrases that are repeated seven times and of course most centrally and obviously there are seven days six of creation then a seventh one of rest but these sevenfold repetitions echo through the chapter as well. Seven is, uh, has a sense of completeness, perhaps, perhaps in particular a sense of global completeness. Uh, it comes up a, a number of times in the Bible because biblical writers often liked to, uh, uh, to use numbers to, to signify things. If you go to the last book of the Bible, for instance, the book of Revelation, which is full of images, you find um, seven seals and seven plagues and seven trumpets and so on, all symbolizing this, this completeness and this globalness of what is being spoken of. And uh, here, 
we will see phrases that are repeated seven times or sometimes 14 times, two times seven. Just once or twice in Genesis chapter 1, things are repeated ten times. The, the tenfold repetition as well throughout the Bible seems to have a, have a significance of, of, of completeness, but in this case with a sense of comprehensiveness. Remember the Ten Commandments, the summary of everything that God calls his people to do. Or uh, in Exodus as well, you get ten plagues on the nation of Egypt, sig signifying God's comprehensive judgment of the nation of Egypt. So this is a slightly foreign world to us, because that's not the way that, that uh, modern um, English-speaking world um, tends to write and to speak. But it was very familiar to, uh, to them, that they, they, they used this, this symbolic repetition. So when in Genesis 1, we find repeated 10 times the phrase, and God said, our ears are supposed to prick up. This is a God who speaks, who spoke indeed everything into existence. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and so on. Ten times, and God said. And each time, it is followed up by the simple phrase, and it was so. Indeed, a little bit more than a one-to-one -one correspondence. There are 14, and it was so. The universe is, says the Bible, the product of the mind of God. That, that truth alone fundamentally changes everything. If the universe is ultimately just controlled by blind forces of nature and physics, then all we can do is follow them. If biological life is only about survival on the, of the fittest, then we must simply follow nature, red in tooth and claw, and fight for our survival. Hitler recruited Darwin to his cause. Because he saw in Darwin's narrative of weaker varieties being overcome by stronger varieties. A pathway to his dominance as an ubermensch, an uberman, a strong man. If we are controlled simply by our selfish genes that drive us to pass on our genetic material, then we will see that, in fact, that the best thing we can do is have sex with as many people as we can to pass on that genetic material and to make sure that our partner is, uh, uh, is suitably fit themselves.
if everything is simply meaningless, then we will just spend our time having as good a time as we possibly can until the sort of entropy of the universe takes over and we, we dissolve into our atoms. It matters what we believe is fundamental behind our lives. It will shape our lives. It will drive us in certain directions. This is what Ian McEwan was, was wrestling with in his, in his book. Is our world just a meaningless set of biological systems? Is that what life is all about? Or is there something more? The Bible says there is something more. Behind all of those things that we observe, there is the mind of God. There is the purpose of God. And if there is a mind, then there is a person. A person whom we should want to come to know. If there is a mind, then there is a plan. A plan that if we understand it, and follow it will lead to our greatest fulfillment, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest joy, our greatest happiness. Because, insists the Bible, God's plan was good. God saw and it was good, we are told. Here, then, is the first thing that the Bible sets out for us. Behind all the mechanics of the universe, all the physics, all the biology, all the, all the politics, all the everything, is the mind of a God who created his world good. And a God who is of such power that he simply needs to speak, he simply needs to vocalize his plan and his idea for it to come into, into being. God said, let there be, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. To say it is to achieve it. If you look at other, uh, other creation stories that were around in the, in the time when the Old Testament was being put together, they had all kinds of outlandish ideas about how the world came into being. Clashes of different gods and fights or gods mating with some other creature or a person or something and the, the world being the offspring of it. All kinds of, 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 of stuff. And the Bible steps aside from that and says, no, there is simply a good God with good intentions who said and it was so. This is his power. This is the simplicity of his purpose. To make a good creation. Indeed, finally, he looks on it and it is very good. 
hand, says Genesis chapter 1. Don't be tempted to worship those amazing, wonderful things that you see, like the sun in the sky by the day or the moon, uh, the moon by night. They were all worshipped as deities, as divine by cultures around them. But no, 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 they're just created. They're just things. They may be amazing. You may be in awe of them, but that is because of the awesome God who lies behind this whole universe. Don't worship them, worship him. God's amazing power by his word is therefore established right at the beginning of the Bible. And the Bible affirms it again and again. God spoke and Orion came into existence and the Milky Way and the North Star. God said, let, let me make Pangaea the great earth mass. Let me make continents. Let me make creatures. Let me make human beings. Let me make Nick and Theo and Gerald and Faith and you. And when he said it, it was as good as done. That is what is being uh, portrayed to us. The God who has infinite power. And as soon as he said it, the verdict is, and it was so. And the God who brings orderliness and wisdom into his creation. Strictly speaking, most of Genesis 1 is not, not about just the, the, the formation from nothing that the Bible does affirm, but the, f the, the, the shaping and the forming of that stuff into something orderly. Uh, it begins, did you notice in verse 2, the, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All those elements, um, um, formless, empty, darkness, Water, they, they, they all have significance of, of, of chaos, disorder in the rest of the Bible. And, that, and from verse 3 onwards, it is about bringing order into God's universe. The, the, the structure of the days, I've, we've got a slide um, I think it's the next one, which uh, will help to, to illustrate that. Um, will we'll, uh, show you, shows us quite how orderly God's world is. It shows us as well that this week, um, and next week we'll discuss how this fits in with geology and biology and all of those kinds of things. But let's just look at the, look at the text for this week. This week is clearly a highly stylized week. So the first three days, days one, two, and three, the, the sort of big features of the orderliness of God's world are created. Day one, 
Uh, light is separated from darkness. Day two, water is separated from water with a vault of the sky uh, between them. Day three is a double day. Land and sea are created. And then on the land, vegetation is created. And then we come back, day four, to uh, features of it's like a watercolour painting, if, you, um, if you've ever done that. You have to do the sort of broad washes, and then you put the details in. The features in day four. Lights are created. Sun, moon, stars. Day five, creatures are created in the waters and the sky, corresponding to day two. And day six, like day three, is a double day. You find that uh, creatures are now pr produced on the land, and then... At the end, there is this, this, this culminating statement of mankind being created. And man and animals are, are uh, uh, at that point, mandated to eat vegetation, which corresponds, do you see, to the second part of day three. It is designed to portray to us a beautiful picture of the orderliness of God's creation. God didn't set a random set of forces going and, uh, and just, you know, you'll see, see what it looks like in a few million years, like some Rorschach ink blot. He knew what he was doing. He designed the universe in its grand forms and its minute features. Everything was created by him in an orderly way. Over the door of the um, old Cavendish laboratory in Cambridge uh, is inscribed Psalm 111 verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. People who ponder the extraordinary beauty of creation, whether it be stars or flowers or um, mysterious creatures of the deep or whatever, that, that awe that they feel, that delight and wonder that they feel, is in part because there is a mind who created this beautiful orderly world. And at the heart of it, our man is mankind. with a particular role that we will look at in a few weeks. But they're established with this unique identity made in the image of God. In one sense, almost everything about what it means to live in God's world, what it means to live as human beings, is encapsulated in this chapter. If you want to look at what the Bible says about ecology and care for creation, you will come back to this chapter and you will find human beings mandated to be stewards of the earth, looking after it. If you want to think about human rights, you will come back to this chapter. And you will see human beings, each individually bearing the image of God, and therefore each individually being uh, uh, immensely precious. And so other ideas of some people being worth more than others dissolve away. 
We have a concept of human rights that we delight in these days, which sprang straight from the Bible. If you want to look at gender identities, we have to start at Genesis 1.28, male and female. He created them. Now, God's powerful, wise word creates an orderly universe. And more than that, it creates within that order wonderful variety. Great lights and lesser lights in the, in the sky. Water teeming with living creatures. Did you notice? Each according to their kind. A sky full of birds. Each according to their kind. Land filled to the brim with every kind of vegetation. Bearing seeds. Each according to its kind. Animals on the earth. Each according to its kind. There, there is a sense of the beautiful variety of species on this, uh, on this earth. Because God is both simple and orderly in his mind and incredibly, richly, beautifully embracing of variety. God's, God's mind creates goodness and beauty. We've already said God saw that it was good. He saw everything that he has created uh, uh, and, and it was very good. Seven times. Don't let anyone tell you that the Bible is a, is a, is a sort of dark book where uh, um, God is wanting to ruin all our, our, our pleasures and, and take us into a dark and dingy world. The, the Bible is a technicolor, beautiful, glorious description of what it means to be human, what it means to live on this earth. It, it pulls no punches when it describes what has gone wrong, and that is what some people find uncomfortable. But that is not to drag us into some kind of miserable dungeon, but to help us to face up to the reality of what it needs to be brought into that full, glorious, varied beauty of being human in this world. And Genesis 1 introduces us very, very clearly to our purpose as human beings. Remember, and God said, and God said, and God said. The last two times we read, and God said. He's not talking in general to the creation or whatever. He's talking to the humankind. And God said, multiply, fill the earth. God said, I give you every vegetation on the land. In other words, having made human beings in his image, now God is not just speaking into the world and it is so. He is speaking to human beings. 
to make it so through them. It is the most extraordinary, dignified position. We are made in the image of God to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. So now God speaks to us and invites us to be willing partners with him in his great work on the earth. One last thing for us to begin to reflect on, and I apologize that I've probably thrown out a, a, a thousand ideas and thoughts to give you a, a a sense of the dazzling beauty of this picture that is before us in Genesis 1. But there's one last element that is really, really important. There is an incompleteness about Genesis 1. It's showed particularly in a particular observation. Uh, Genesis 1 says God made this, that and the other seven times that is pretty predictable he made everything but there's another much more potent word that the Genesis 1 uses it's the word that gets translated create it's a particular word in, in the Bible. Uh, the English translation in some ways get, catches the sort of greater, greater weight and significance of that word. Made is a very common or garden day-to-day -day word. You can make a cake, make all kinds of things. But create in the Bible is only predicated of God. Only God creates. And in Genesis 1, the word create occurs six times. It's waiting. There's a sense in which everything's been made. And there's a sense in which we're not there yet. There's been a mandate given to human beings. Who knows what they'll do with it in Genesis 1. I'm afraid if you read the rest of the Bible, it's not good news. But in Genesis 1, there is one last create that we're longing to hear. And so as the story of the Bible unfolds, we see the word create popping up here and there, particularly in Isaiah. It culminates in this great promise in Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. There's a, there's a last great act of creation. There's a last great Word 
that God has to speak. And the New Testament picks up on that in various places. But Hebrews 1, for instance, in the past, God spoke to us and to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus Christ. Or as uh, in John chapter 1, the passage we uh, looked at, uh, we read together at the beginning of our, our service. In the beginning was the Word. Same idea, you see, the Word. But this time, NIV puts a capital W because it's clearly a person who was with God and was God. The Word through him all things were made. Without him nothing has made, been made that has been made. Yes, we saw that as God spoke things into uh, existence. But John 1 goes on, John 1, 14. The word became flesh. It's what we celebrated at Christmas. Somehow the last great word from God is not a bit of vocab at all, it's a person. Who when he comes, he completes God's work of creation. The, in various places, the New Testament writers make it plain that when Jesus had died on the cross for our sins, and then rose again. He rose on the first day of the week. Got a quote from John 20, I think, behind me. Because it was the beginning of a new week. A new week of creation. A new week that would finally continue on to the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. But in Genesis 1, we're waiting. Now there is an awful lot of deliberation and discussion about what life is all about what the meaning of life is, what the purpose of your life is. And at the beginning of another year, a lot of people, their mind turns towards those kinds of questions. Genesis 1 says, here is a glorious, glorious picture of who you are. You are a part of the good creation from the mind of God. You were created with a unique role and a dignified role as made in God's image. To hear the word of God and God said, 
and fulfill his good purposes. When you go out to work on Monday morning, when you serve people, when you make good things, when you, when you simply live the life that you were supposed to and meant to live, you are responding to the good purposes of God and it has infinite dignity. And you were made to find your completion in Jesus, who is the last word from God, whose resurrection was the beginning of a new creation that one day will become the new heavens and the new earth, who gives you hope in our new year. Now you find me a more glorious, more satisfying, picture of what it means to be human rather I think those who have reflected on these things like Matthew Arnold consider everything else to be a dreary dark noisy withdrawal from the fullness of what it means to be human And as we turn towards the communion table, we pray, Lord, please help us to have eyes to see your calling on us as your people on the earth. Pray, Lord, please help us to be those who have put our trust in Jesus and found in him light and life. Pray that you would fill our hearts with worship of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.